Father, um, thank you that your Son has overcome the world. Thank you that we can take courage in him. Thank you, Father, that we can pray to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that uh, for us who are in Jesus, that you love us, uh, that you care for us, uh, that we can share in Jesus' triumph. We ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would gently but deeply uh, work in us, a work of healing in our body, a work of healing in our soul, a work of healing in our spirit, so that we might be encouraged by the gospel and learn to encourage others to their good and your great glory. This we ask in Jesus' name, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Um, I don't want to worry you. I know how um, <clears throat> congregations can get very worried when the minister does something out of the usual. Out of the usual. I'm going to begin my sermon here, and then I'm going to move to up there. Uh, and uh, the reason is obvious, because I have to watch the screen for the first couple of minutes. Uh, if you saw in the bulletin, uh, the theme, uh, the t- title of the sermon today is Choose Encouragement, or Choose to Encourage. And um, uh, those of you who know me know that I'm a little bit weak in the gift of encouragement. And uh, so I actually thought I would go to the internet to get some resources to uh, encourage you. So maybe what we'll just do is we'll look at these different images, and then I'll just say amen, and then we'll move on. Uh, But maybe we'll need to actually open the word. So uh, these are some of the posters and sayings that I found to encourage you uh, this morning. Uh Uh-oh, maybe the screen. Oh, there it is. Just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. (laughs) It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. That's a ship sinking. That's a bike flying off a cliff, if you can't see it from the back. Keep keep living life like there's no tomorrow, and you'll be right sooner than you think. (laughs) Um, When people are free to do as they please, they usually imitate each other. Hipsters, take note. There you go. Uh, Looking sharp is easy when you haven't done any work. Some of you might want to take that to your office. Um, That's somebody climbing up a steep hill. I expected times like this, but never thought they'd be so bad, so long, and so frequent. There we go. There we go. There's there's somebody losing their surfing board there, if you can see that. When good fortune often eludes you, this kind never misses. Uh, There you go. Winners. Because nothing says you're a loser more than owning a motivational poster about being a winner. Uh, There's a bear about to eat a fish climbing the rapids. The journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. So um, I hope you all feel deeply encouraged by those uh, particular um, uh, posters. Um, And I hope I didn't offend anybody here who happens to have a poster that says winner um, in your house or in your office. Um, uh, so I, I hope I didn't offend you by, by that. But here's the thing. Actually, uh, I, I, I think I can say this. A- Andrew, uh, who, who looked up the images for me, I, I gave him the ones I wanted. And uh, he, he actually, I mean, some of you probably ha- work in offices where people are always putting posters like that or telling you these little, uh, you know, normally would say ambition and something else about how you just have to dream big or think big or whatever, and, and you'll succeed. And uh, so many of us sort of labor under those types of, uh, type of encouragement. Here's, here's, here's the, uh, the problem with some of this stuff, as we all know. That's why we can uh, relate to this. On one hand, 
uh, we do know that sometimes uh, we, we need encouragement, we need hope. Uh, we're in difficult situations, and, uh, and I don't want to try to undermine that, especially things that happen to work for you. But the problem with a lot of encouragement and a lot of motivation is that, um, first of all, posters like, like, like that, if they said the normal thing you'd see in the doctor's office or maybe where you work, um, is that they often just seem to be there to manipulate you. They're just there to manipulate you. And, um, and uh, it, it's, it's as if people will, will say, you know, you're the most valued employee we, that we have. What you're doing is unbelievably important. And then the next day, they lay you off. And, uh, or that there's things going on in your workplace. Uh, and rather than the employers wanting to hear uh, some helpful comments or feedback, they use posters or sayings like this to try to silence uh, silence things, uh, silence the people who have some insight about problems, silence bad things that are going on. And so often these words of encouragement or these types of posters are used to manipulate, to ignore problems, uh, or to try to tell us something which just, just isn't true. Uh, and so while on one hand, some of us have a bit of a, uh, I mean, we like the pictures of some of them and, and we, we hope that the sentiments or the cliches are true, but at the same time, we also sort of know that there's just something not quite right with it. Um, uh, when I was in university, uh, one of my friends, um, uh, his mother went in for, um, for some simple surgery. Uh, she was going to be, she had to be put out for it. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, we're all, every, everybody, I wasn't, but, you know, everybody was telling me how it's all going to work out good, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, you know, I, I don't know what the statistics are for this particular surgery. Maybe it is that only, like, you know, 0.0001% of people who go through this surgery have serious complications that lead to your death. But for my friend's mother, she was that 0.0001%. And in something which should have been very routine, she died on the operating table. And it was very, very, very devastating, to, as, as you can imagine, to my friend and to all the other people who'd been just so glibly telling him that everything was going to be great and perfect and work out. And so we all know, on one hand, we want sort of the Disney view of the world to be true, but at another level, we know that the Disney view of the world uh, is not true. And often, when Christians want to try to uh, help each other learn how to encourage, we revert not to John Paul Sartre, who uh, Jeremiah was talking about earlier, but we revert to Disney and motivational posters. So we, as Christians, were a little bit caught. Uh, if you listened to Helen speak earlier, uh, when she was reading from 1 Thessalonians 5, and that's what we're going to be looking at. Hopefully you can get your Bibles out and uh, turn in them to 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verses 9 and following. Uh, the Bible here very clearly tells us that we have to encourage one another. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we might not always really know how to do it because our right-handedness of encouragement is to go into the Disney world and to motivational posters. So let, let's actually, uh, what we're going to do, if, uh, if Andrew, if you could put the, um, the Bible text up, uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to read the text together that we're going to look at over these next, if you look in the bulletin in the pastor's blog, I lay out how we're going to spend eight weeks on 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 to 28, looking at different exhortations there. And today we're just looking at the first exhortation, which is to encourage. And so why don't you join with me in uh, reading uh, this text? For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Here's what this text, here's the first thing that this text is bringing home to us. Through the cross of Christ, God knows me perfectly and still offers me a salvation which is immediate, complete, full, whole, eternal, and irrevocable. That's what this text of Scripture is teaching me and teaching us, that through the cross of Christ, God knows me perfectly and still offers me a salvation which is immediate, complete, full, whole, eternal, and irrevocable. Um, it's really, really quite amazing. This, this, this book that we're, that we're going to be spending eight weeks in, uh, Thessalonica was the second city in Europe, the second place in Europe to have the Christian faith come. And if you go back later on and you read Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17, you'll see uh, an historical account of something momentous. The Christian faith didn't enter Europe uh, with armies. Uh, it didn't uh, enter Europe with, uh, with uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people flooding to, to do uh, all sorts of remarkable, amazing things. It didn't enter with all sorts of technology and wealth. There were three or four guys who got off a boat in Philippi, and as their feet touch the ground, as described in Acts chapter 16, the first Christians enter Europe. And the first person to respond to the Christian faith is a woman by the name of Lydia. And she becomes the first European Christian. And uh, if you read Acts 16, you'll see that things go badly for Paul. Uh, I mean, he ends up leaving a small church, but uh, he's, throw, he's beaten by, with rods, thrown in jail. God does something miraculous. And uh, Paul and his uh, small missionary team uh, go to their next city, and the next city down the road is Thessalonica. And uh, Paul starts to, to speak about Jesus in Thessalonica. And, um, and first he speaks to, uh, to Jewish people. Uh, and then as a result of his sharing about Jesus, three groups of people, uh, people ordinary people from three types of groups, uh, respond to the gospel and become followers of Jesus. People who are Jewish, uh, pagans who had become Jewish, uh, so they've taken the, the trip from paganism to, to, uh, to, to, to Judaism, but now they take another step and become Christians. And the third group are people who were pagans who hadn't become Jews first. And these three different groups are part of this very, very early church in Thessalonica. And then a great persecution comes uh, upon the church in Thessalonica, and upon Paul uh, once again, and, uh, and after some things he has to leave. And uh, when we read 1 Thessalonians, what we're reading is, a, is a, a copy of a letter that Paul wrote um, probably about 17 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's one of the first parts in the New Testament that were written. And about 17 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul, uh, just a few months after he's left Thessalonica, sends a letter to the Thessalonians, to the church, uh, to talk to them about important things to do with the Christian faith. And, um, and one of the things that all three of those groups had in common, uh, whether it's the, the Ju- Judaism as it was practiced at that time, or whether it was pagans who had become uh, Jewish, uh, or whether it was pagans, 
is that their, their mindset was influenced. They were basically practicing different forms of what I call common human religion. And in common human religion, uh, basically, <clears throat> you do more good things than bad things. And um, or maybe the weight of certain good things are enough to outweigh a lot of small bad things. Maybe one, you know, one afternoon spent, uh, you know, with your uh, with your father-in-law who's really grumpy and mean uh, outweighs uh, the fact that you cheated on your taxes and you've been telling a whole pile of small lies to your your girlfriend or your wife. So it doesn't necessarily mean you do more good things than bad things because you know, and we all like to sort of inflate the weight, so to speak, of our good things and underinflate the weight of our bad things. Uh, but at the end of the day, common human religion is that if you do more good things than bad things, or the weight of your good things outweigh the bad things, then God, in a sense, has an obligation to you to put you in a better place when you die. And, uh, and so maybe those good things will involve making a trip to Mecca um, and keeping Ramadan. Maybe those good things will involve learning how to, uh, the 39 articles and how to do traditional Anglicanism. Maybe it will involve... Uh, spending time in church on a Sunday morning when it's sunny outside and you could be doing something different. Uh, maybe it's uh, 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 having a bar mitzvah. Uh, maybe it's learning spells. Uh, maybe it's uh, learning spells and voting NDP. Um, like, whatever it is. Um, no, I just say, like, you know, what it, whatever it is. Whether it's, like, whatever we would call New Age or whether it's Hindu or whether it's Buddhist, like, there's this common human religion that if you do more good things than bad things, that God has an obligation to you to, 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 to send you to a better place when you die. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that Jesus and the message of Jesus does not fit into any, it does not fit into the common human religion. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that we are naturally drawn to common human religion. Actually, what we have is we have a love-hate relationship with common human religion. Um, at certain times in our life, maybe we, we sort of have a, 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 a drawing to it and, and doing more good things than bad things. And, and others of us respond uh, maybe by just throwing up our hands at any of that and just say, uh, you know what, when you die, that's it, let's have a beer. <laughs> or, you know, when you die, that's it, let's make some money, have some fun, and then you die, that's it. And so some people tend to just throw their turn their back on common human religion. Some sort of keep their foot in the door with it. Some completely and utterly embrace it. The gospel is completely and utterly different. The gospel says that God is never in our debt. Never, ever, ever, ever in our debt. And the remarkable thing is that Jesus, uh, by his death upon the cross, when Jesus looks at you and looks at me, when he thinks of you and thinks of me, he knows every single thing there is to know about us, and still he dies for us. And that when he dies upon the cross, he doesn't just die for the me that's lived uh, from when I was born to now, and deals with the things that I've done in my life from the time I was born to now, but he sees the entire length of my life. He sees me from the moment of my conception to the moment of my death. He sees me in all of my depth, in all of my angularity, in all of my particularity, and seeing all that there is to see to know, uh, to know about me, he, die, he takes my place, that full place, and dies upon the cross for me. And so that in the gospel... God offers something to us that we can never possibly accomplish by ourselves. Because the gospel says we delude ourselves to think that we can ever, ever possibly put the living God in our debt. 
What we do not need is a quest to put God in our debt. What we need is a humility to recognize that God has to show mercy upon us or we have no hope. And the gospel is that there is a living God who does exist, who hears our prayers, that hope can be real, and that God does in Jesus what no human being can do in and of themselves. And what is accomplished on the cross is that through the cross of Christ, God knowing me perfectly, and still he offers me a salvation which is immediate when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that's complete, uh, which is full, whole, eternal, and irrevocable. It means that no amount of failure, whether it's a financial failure, a physical failure, uh, emotional, relational, intellectual, whatever that, no amount of failure tomorrow will make Jesus reconsider his relationship with me and his dying for me. We'll catch him by surprise. And I can do all sorts of good works, but all those good works are not something that adds to what Jesus has done because what Jesus does for us on the cross is perfect, complete, full, eternal, completely and utterly sufficient, all done by Jesus for us. And and you see, this this is really, 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 really important. Many of us uh, walk around thinking to ourselves, um, no one will love me as I really am. And uh, that's a, a heavy thing to carry. It's a funny thing, but many, many people will carry it even though they're dating or even though they're married. Many people will carry that even though they've been married for many, many decades. That underneath it all, they have this basic sense that no one will love me as I really am. And to them, the gospel says that Jesus knew us perfectly and still he offers me a salvation which is immediate, complete, full, whole, eternal, and irrevocable. Many people worry that if people got closer to us, they'd like us less. (laughs) And so we can become either reclusive types or we can become very good at jokes and other types of things to keep people at a distance because internally we worry that if people got to know, if they got closer to me, they'd like me less. Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus knows me better than I know myself. And still he died on the cross for me. And what he offers me is something which is complete, full, whole, eternal, and irrevocable. Many of us worry that uh, we have things in our past that if people were to find out about it, they'd leave. They'd leave us. But the Bible says that Jesus knows everything there is to know about us and still he died on the cross for us. And what he offers us is something which is immediate, complete, full, whole, eternal, and irrevocable. Some of us worry that no one will ever care for us or help us or meet our deepest needs. The Bible says that Jesus knows our deepest need, which is that we have been separated from the living God, the creator, the source of all life, that we are alienated and separate from the source of all life, that we are, in fact, cut flowers, so to speak, and that we can't leave ourselves to fix ourselves. And our deepest alienation from our creator helps to cause alienation with all sorts of relationships outside of ourselves and to the world and even to ourselves. And the Bible says that Jesus, knowing all of that about us, still he died for us and he deals with our deepest need. 
which is to be reconciled to the living God, the source of all health and life, our creator, and that what he offers us is complete and full and whole and eternal and irrevocable. And many of us walk around believing that there is something so fundamentally broken or wrong about us that we're doomed that whatever we touch, we will wreck. And the Bible passage here even uses the language of doom and destiny. And it says that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that what is written on our foreheads is not doomed, but destined for union with Christ. And that what is offered to us in Jesus is whole and full and complete and eternal and irrevocable. That is what Jesus does for us on the cross. Could you put the text up again? Let's read it together again. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing uh, if you go back and read uh, 1 Thessalonians, it's five chapters, I think it's only 89 verses. It doesn't take you very long to read. You'll see that Paul uses a sleep as sort of a metaphor of death. And so it's saying here, whether we die or whether we are awake, we, uh, w- whether we're alive or whether we die, uh, when we're in Jesus and have union with him, uh, we are with him. It's irrevocable. Um, a couple of years ago, I was in the Starbucks. Not a surprise that I was in the Starbucks a couple of years ago. Uh, those of you who know me, and I overheard a conversation of, uh, of two young women uh, just sitting sort of beside me, and uh, they were talking about the upcoming marriage. Of, one of them was getting married, and the other one was their friend. They were talking about it. And, um, uh, you know, she, uh, the, the, I guess it was bridesmaid or something said to the, 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 the future bride, you know, he seems like a really nice guy, but, you know, are you really sure about getting married to him? And the bride said, I, I always remember this, I, I get the words slightly mixed up, but she said, no, I, I really love him. I think we'll spend our life together. But you know, if it doesn't work out, I just divorce him. And she said it just like that. Like, if it doesn't work out, I'll just divorce him. And then she went on to say, like, you know, my mom and dad have both been divorced uh, more than once. And, you know, my aunts and uncles and my grandparents. So here's the thing. If you could put up the next point, Andrew. When Jesus takes me as his own, he has no exit strategy. When Jesus takes me as his own, he has no exit strategy. See, one of the things which makes it so hard for us in life is that so many things break trust. Institutions break trust. Families break trust. Relationships break trust. And that seems to be such a common feature in our society today that whether we're conscious of it or not, often we enter into relationships with an exit strategy already in our mind. And when we live in a world where trust is very, very fragile, when we live in a world where things break down, we just sort of assume that exit strategies are always wise And we also sort of assume that that's how God will relate to us. And what happens is we end up going one of two ways when we think about that. We either start to go towards uh, a religious form of Christianity, like a common human religious form of Christianity, 
where we start to become obsessed with being religious and obsessed with being spiritual in the sense that if we can just do enough of these Christian-type things that God will be in our debt and he will not have an exit strategy with us, or we say, to heck with it all. Let's go have a beer. Let's not bother. Let's just, you know, forget about it all. And it's because we bring an exit strategy understanding into hearing chapter, nine, uh, chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. But, but here's one of the wonderful things. One of the reasons I've chosen 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 to, 11, uh, 9 to 28 for these series of exhortations is the way that Paul brackets these exhortations. You, I mean, it's not up on the screen. You have to actually use your Bibles if you have them with you. If you don't have your Bibles with you, I'll read it out loud. But if you look at the end of the exhortations, it's verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. After Paul gives these list of exhortations, here's what he says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. You see, it's so easy for us as Christians to say, okay, we have to, I'm going to have to talk about encouragement. Okay, I'm going to go find out those motivational posters, and I'll just give you a few little motivational thoughts, and, and, and it's all about us. But Paul, go back up to the scripture text, Andrew. Notice the therefore. It's something about the gospel that the therefore encourage. And in fact, you, in, in, in a sense, the, the therefore is going to follow every one of the next seven weeks. That therefore is there. And so Paul goes, the Bible goes from the cross, the gospel, to the fact that it will start to lead naturally into a certain type of choosing and a certain type of discipline. And at the end of it, just, just in case you've forgotten about the cross, and how it is that on the cross, what the salvation that God offers us is whole and full and complete and, and eternal and irrevocable. At the end, he reminds you that it's not only us choosing, that it's not just that as the gospel grips us, that as the gospel grips us, rather than it starting to lead us to be just like couch potatoes in terms of virtues and change, that as the gospel grips us without us realizing it, we get nudged into certain types of behaviors. Without us realizing it, as the gospel grips us, we get drawn to certain types of changes in behavior. That as, without realizing it, as the gospel grips us, it starts to shape us in a certain type of way that we live. And as the gospel grips us, it also grounds us that certain types of behavior make sense. They make sense. And here we see that um, that when Jesus takes me as his own, he has no exit strategy. Um, there's several people that I, I'm talking to in, in Starbucks lately, and um, it's very obvious that um, they haven't specifically said it, but I, I can sort of catch a bit of a subtext behind their questions, and they're relating to me. They have a, a very common worry that coming close to Jesus, they have no sense they really have this sense that the only choices between them are some form of common human religion, um, whether that's or, or being completely and utterly irreligious. And their worry about it is that if they become Christian, 
They're going to have to start wearing weird clothes because that's what religious people do, don't they? Like real religious people. I mean, actually, I, you know, like they sort of, they should be going long facial hair if they're men because for some reason having a beard always makes you more like Jesus. I mean, I, sorry, I, I, I'm not making any comment. I used, to have a big, I used to have a big long beard, by the way. But, I, you know, but here's the thing. Having a beard right now would just make you a hipster, not, uh, not weird. But um, um, the thing about it is, is that many of us have a worry. I can tell when I'm talking to these different people that they have a worry that if they uh, come to Jesus, that they're going to have to start... Um, being weird, uh, do a whole pile of odd religious activities and pretend that they like it. And um, they're going to end up becoming intolerant. They're going to end up hating women, hating gays, loving violence. Um, and that's a, like, that's a very, very real worry for a lot of people. And... Um, and I, I try to have, I'm trying to have this conversation with a couple of them to try to get them to see that somehow some of these things like hating women or hating gays or loving violence is a human problem. And that the real question isn't whether Christianity causes it. The real question is that if in fact it's a human problem, and agnostics also have problems with intolerance. Atheists have problems with intolerance and hatred and bigotry. But if it's a human problem, how does your system of thought help you to deal with it? And it's, a, it's been a hard, you can pray for me, it's a hard slog for me to try to get them to, to see that somehow their position, like how, what grounds it? Here's the thing. Say, say, um, say this text again with me. Say verses 9 to 11 with me again. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Here's the thing. This text you can put up the point, Andrew. Day by day, I am learning to follow the one who died for me and for everyone else who trusts in him. Day by day, the gospel is calling me to learn to follow the one who died for me and for everyone else who trusts in him. It's, it's, very struck, it's very, very striking that Paul is a former, I mean, he was a capital, religious with a capital R, capital E, capital L. I'm not going to spell the rest of it because I'm not that good at spelling it. I might mess it up. It would be very embarrassing if I couldn't spell religious in public. But you get it. Every letter is capitalized. And, and he met Jesus, and here he is. It's the same guy who's now speaking to pagans about what it is that Jesus has done for them and how, what Jesus, how Jesus is completely and utterly different from common human religion. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this this week uh, as I was biking around and stuff like that, that, um, you know, there's a lot of valid complaints about missionaries throughout history and, um, and some of the cultural prejudices and other things that they brought along with them. But here's the thing that people don't often think about. 
like in movies and novels. Okay, you have a missionary, and in, in the 19th century, many missionaries who went to Africa, did you know that when they went to Africa, they brought their caskets with them? They brought their possessions and a casket because they knew they were going there to die. They weren't going there for fame and fortune, but to die. And, um, and, and so they, they go and they leave the comfort of, it's in this particular case, England. And they go and they start to learn the language of China or the language of the Maasai in, in, in Kenya or the, the language of, of, of some other people group. And some of their prejudices get revealed in this whole process of living amongst these people and learning their languages and telling them about Jesus. But what about all the people who stayed behind just to make money? The books and the movies and the history courses at the university, they just assume that, what, all the people back in England, that they're all unbelievable universalists, that they're all just loving the, the African and the Chinese? that they don't have any prejudice? They're not even in a place to have their prejudice revealed. And they care so little for those far away that they stay in the comfort of their home. But there's a dynamism and energy in the gospel that if God has so accepted me in Jesus in something which is immediate, full, whole, complete, eternal and irrevocable. And that Jesus isn't just the savior of, of, of the people in the Middle East or of, of Europe or of North America, but of ev- potentially every single people group. That in fact, there's a dynamism in the gospel, not just to stay in your group with like-minded people, but to walk across the room from your group to meet the person who identifies themselves as gay or the immigrant or the person who hasn't come to this country. And yes, in the process of doing that encounter, there will be things revealed about ourselves that we did not know, but those who never go will never even know that those things are in them, that those common human problems are there. And the profound resource of the gospel is that day by day, I am learning to follow the one who died for me. Who died for me. Why shouldn't I follow one who loves me enough to die for me? Who has no exit strategy for me. And I am learning to follow the one who died for me and for everyone else who trusts in him. Everyone else who trusts in him. Now, some of you might say, George, I'm sort of glad that you shared with us that you're not very good at encouragement. We've been trying to tell you about this for a while. <laughs> now it's sort of out. Um, this, by the way, I, I know that not being as good at encouragement is, is something I, I, like, I really should. Pr- please pray for me that I'm better at encouragement. This has been a very challenging sermon for me this week. I've been praying at least once a day, every day, that God would make me a better encourager. Uh, you know, some of you might know a couple of years ago, at this, in part of the sermon, I shared that I was an introvert. And, um, and so after the sermon, after I'd shared that I was an introvert, and I said, by the way, I don't think introversion's a, like, being extroverted is not making you closer to Jesus. Uh, just some people are extroverted, some are introverted, I'm introverted. 
And, uh, and so, so, I'm not making this up. A woman after the service said, oh, oh, Pastor George, that was so brave of you to share that you're an introvert. Can I pray for you? And I said, well, I always need more prayer. I said, sure. And then she wrapped her big arm around me, clutched me to her chest in a headlock, and started to pray for me to be delivered from introversion. Never dawning that an introvert might not like having an arm thrown around them, <laughs> clutched to their breast while they pray in a loud voice for me to be delivered of something which I think is just neutral. There'll be introverts and extroverts in heaven. But I would like to, to be a better at, at encouraging. And, and some of you might say, George, you can probably relate to me. Uh, you know, it's very hard for some of us, because of our backgrounds, to actually encourage other people because, boy, you know, if you just knew my parents... If you knew what my husband was like, or what my wife was like, or my ex-husband, or my ex-wife, or if you knew what my kids were like, you'd know how hard it'd be for me to... If you knew what my boss was like, if you knew what my job was like, you'd understand that it's very hard for me. It's easy for me to discourage people, and it's hard for me to encourage people. And the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus knows all this about us. He knows our context. He knows our context when he calls us to encouragement. Listen to this again. Put up the scripture. Andrew, let's read it together again. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. In our culture, we often seem to uh, think that uh, there are these historical forces and, and biological forces and personal forces which determine the way we are. And often we're just a victim of these powerful forces. But at the heart of the gospel is this sense that not only do we have the power to choose uh, within our context, but that as we come to Jesus, what Jesus gives us is freedom, greater freedom to choose. Some of us will always have contexts which are very, very difficult, contexts which truly will always shape the form of our discipleship. But the Bible rejects this idea that we are purely victims, purely and utterly pushed around by forces of biology or economics or ideology or culture or class, but that there's a power to choose. I express it this way, if you could put it up, Andrew. I am not doomed by my circumstances, but I am destined by God for union with Christ this day and every day for all eternity. I am not doomed by my circumstances, but I am destined by God for union with Christ this day and every day for all eternity. You'll notice that in all of my points, most of my points I either use I or me, and I don't use that because I'm trying to hold myself up as a model but that if you write them down as points, then you're writing it down as I. That's why I put I. That if you write that down as an insight for you, and as you read it over later, you're reading it not as George, but as I, as me. So the Bible is saying it's going to maybe be very, very hard for some of us to encourage. Because of our circumstances, and maybe for some it will be easy. 
but that we can begin today to choose to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ in Church of the Messiah and our brothers and sisters in Christ in other Christian communities in Ottawa, that we can begin today to choose to encourage. We can begin to choose to encourage. Uh, I'm just going to put up, uh, I'm going to sort of bring this to a close, a couple of things to sort of maybe help you and I with encouragement. And the fundamental thing to help you with encouragement is to maybe pray a prayer like this, uh, which is how, actually, uh, the, how I would word it. Uh, the, the next point, Andrew. Help Jesus, please help me this day to receive every day to both receive encouragement and to encourage others to their true good and your true glory. Uh, Jesus, please help me this day and every day to both receive encouragement and to encourage others to their true good and your true glory. And um, I've been sort of praying my way through to that prayer throughout the week. Uh, You can pray that I would continue to pray it and that God would answer it in my life, that I would be better encouraging others. And uh, pray it for yourself. Uh, whether you're good at encouragement or not, it's a, it's a things begin to change with prayer. Um, one of the things you can do to be a better encourager is maybe to ask somebody to pray for you, that you'd be better at encouragement. Hopefully they will not discourage you by saying no. <laughs> but they'll encourage <laughs> Please pray that I would be better encouragement. No, I'm not going to do that for you. Good grief. Hopefully you'll say yes. That's part of your own learning to be more encouraging that if they ask you to pray, uh, that you'll actually um, try, try to do it. And, um, and another thing is I'm going to ask, I'm going to invite you to do something to help me. I'm going to do this every week after the sermon uh, as part of the sermon. Uh, I would really appreciate it if this week you emailed either me and my personal email address uh, or the uh, church office email address with your pointers about how to encourage and, uh, or your don'ts about encouragement. And uh, I will, uh, Amy and I, Amy doesn't know this yet, <laughs> but I'll, uh, I'll take some of them and uh, we'll sort of uh, just, you know, maybe s- uh, smooth up the grammar or whatever, or if there's several that are all the same, maybe merge them into one. And next week, I'll have, we'll have an insert with some practical pointers about encouragement that have come from you, uh, not me. Uh, maybe I'll add, I'll add a couple of my own. Uh, but, you know, it begins, it begins with asking that Jesus would work in us so that we can, I can receive encouragement from him and from others. Because some of us aren't good at receiving encouragement or hearing encouragement and others, and that we'll also learn to, to actually be active in encouraging others to their good and to God's glory. And um, so I encourage you folks to think about Jesus, to be gripped by the gospel. If you are here today and you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you've thought that coming to Jesus is just another form of common human religion that's going to make you push you into all sorts of weird things or bigotry, it's far from that, completely and utterly Far from that, that what Jesus offers you is completely and utterly different from common human religion. He offers you grace, and he offers, he has done something on the cross for you which is full, complete, that you can receive immediately, that is perfect, is whole, is eternal, and is irrevocable, and that when Jesus takes you as his own, he has no exit strategy, and as you follow the one who loved you so much that he died for you, he will push and pull you naturally into things that will reveal things about yourself that aren't good.
but at the same time, it will provide resources for you to realize that Jesus died for this other person as well, and that your obligation is to pray that they too will give up the choice of common human religion and irreligion, but come come to the Savior who loves them so much that he died for them on the cross. If you have not yet come to Jesus, there's no better time than today to call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, please, all that stuff that George has talked about, I, I, I reject common human religion, I reject your religion, I come to you, please, Jesus, be in my life as Savior and Lord. No better time than right today to say such prayer. Let's stand. Let's pray. First and foremost, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our lives, that we will be gripped by the gospel, that we will be disciples of Jesus, gripped by the gospel, living for your glory. Father, help us to be gripped by the gospel, that what Jesus has done for us is done for us, and we can add nothing to it, that it is done for us and is complete and perfect and eternal and full and whole and irrevocable. Father, grip us with the gospel that there is no exit strategy on Jesus' behalf towards us. Father, grip us by the gospel that this is something that Jesus has done for us, can do for us, will do for us, and will do for others that we meet when they put their faith and trust in him. Father, lead us to prayer. Grip us with the gospel. Help us to encourage. And this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.